From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The elevators don't get you all the way to the top. You have to take some stairs and walk past pipes and motors and pumps. Wow, the guts here. Then a door opens and you're on the roof of what used to be the tallest building in Colorado. The view is dizzy. What the skyline tells us about where our state's been and where it's headed. Then building homes with a brick that's alive and fights climate change. We're looking more toward carbon neutral, perhaps even carbon storage. And later, a voice we will miss, CPR host Bob Lafley could opine on classical music and deliver the day's news. Boulders that fell hit the top lanes, bounced down to the lanes underneath and even into the Colorado River. Our remembrance coming up. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm on the roof of a pretty tall building in downtown Denver. In fact, this was the tallest building in Colorado 50 years ago. The Brooks Tower Residences, 42 stories tall. They were still new half a century ago. You know what else was new? Brand new in 1970? Colorado Public Radio. This year is our 50th anniversary. And to mark it all this year, we have stories about Colorado then and now. How has our state changed? And we thought, what's a more visible symbol of that change than Colorado's tallest building then and now? So again, in 1970, it was this, Brooks Tower. Now it's Republic Plaza, which I can see from here, 714 feet tall, built in 1984. Kind of interesting that nothing taller has come along since. And all of this is in stark contrast to what's known as Denver's first block, Larimer Square, which is just a stone's throw from here. Not to worry, I don't plan to be throwing any stones. But Larimer Square is actually a good segue because we're going to speak with the woman who fought to save it from destruction. That's developer and preservationist Dana Crawford, who's got great perspective on Colorado then and now. She continues to shape it from Denver to Idaho Springs to Trinidad. So... Let's get off the roof, head over to Crawford's home, which is a condo building she brought back from the brink, the flour mill lofts, along the Platte River in Denver. Dana, it's nice to have you back on the show. Well, it's very nice to be here again. So since 1970, when Colorado Public Radio was born, 13 buildings taller than the Brooks Tower have been built. Uh, Like the Cash Register Building, the Four Seasons Hotel... Again, the current tallest is Republic Plaza, 714 feet tall. It has rained for some 30-odd years now. Does, does that surprise you? Did you expect Denver would have a taller skyline by now? Well, I'm not um, one that gets so upset about tall buildings because with the growth, we're going to have more density. And for me, the tall buildings can offer more density and still keep the quality of life at ground level. Do you think that Denver will have a taller skyline than it has today? Oh, absolutely, yes. You do? Yes. I know that. You don't think that the Republic Plaza's reign is going to go on forever? Oh, no, I don't think so. You don't think so? No. You you heard it here from Dana Crawford, folks. Competition is healthy. You got to Colorado in, I think, 1954. You'd been in grad school in Boston, originally grew up in Kansas. Compared to Boston, I'm wondering if this felt like a real cow town. No, it was a very attractive town, and I was kind of disappointed about not going back to Boston because it had so much heritage. 
And it was very obvious early on that Denver wasn't paying very much attention to its heritage, which was rich in the history of the West and in the history of the world, really. What were signs to you that it wasn't paying enough attention? Well, they had just demolished the Denver Club building downtown, which was a magnificent Richardsonian building. Yeah, describe it for me. Well, it was gone by the time I got here. I just saw pictures of it. It was very Victorian and had a huge presence like the Brown Palace Hotel, you know. Boom. Gone. Gone. And, you know, I just used to like to be at the Brown Palace and places that reminded me of Boston. And there were quite a few. But they were all slated to be torn down in urban renewal. In urban renewal, I'm glad you mentioned that because a little over 50 years ago, Denver voters had approved the Skyline Urban Renewal Plan. You know, it sounds like a lovely title, but it led to the demolition of many historic buildings. And the idea was progress, make way for new and modern and better. What actually resulted was a lot of empty lots that became surface parking lots. Talk more about that time, what you thought was on the line, what you thought was being lost. The heritage of the community was being lost because Larimer Street had been kind of the main street early on, and everything along Larimer Street was slated for demolition. Did that include Larimer Square? Oh, yeah. There's a book that's been put out called Lost Denver, and you can see what went, which was block after block after block. And then what came along, and this was going on across the nation, was big concrete projects that... What's that? That is, unfortunately, a um, construction job going on upstairs. Oh, so even as we're talking about how Denver is changing, there's construction going on in your building. It seems fitting. Well, this is a wonderful old building. It used to be a flour mill. When I tackled this project toward the end of the um, 90s, even my own children said, she's really lost at this time. She thinks that this place can be salvaged. Right. Well, you can look around and look. The graffiti was just everywhere. And people said, well, nobody will ever want to live there. But lo and behold, they did. Yes. We'll pick up your story. A lot was slated for demolition. More could have been lost. True. And we were able to um, save the 1400 block on Larimer, where Denver really had its roots. It's known as Denver's first block. Right. And we had to have a rather large, fairly unattractive battle with the Urban Renewal Authority at the time. And I was very disliked by the Urban Renewal Authority. The chairman at the time, when I would come to a meeting, would pick up his chair and turn his back to me. Oh. Did you understand what they wanted to achieve in Denver? Well, they wanted to sweep out the old and bring in the new, and they thought that it was progress. And The business leadership was very much in favor of that. And it was happening in Seattle. At one time, the uh, Pike Place Market was slated to be torn down in Seattle. And a bunch of citizens rose up and saved it. How did you convince them that Larimer Square should stay? Well, I, I don't think I convinced them as much as just the general public. Because we announced Larimer Square and the idea and the philosophy of Larimer Square in May of 65, and almost immediately, people started coming down there. And we started renovation almost immediately. 
Yeah, these and buildings were not in great shape at the time. It no. wasn't a kind of sparkling retail and restaurant strip like it is today. It was the third round for tired old restaurant equipment. And the places really smelled quite repulsive. And the the block was essentially empty except for these stores that had handled this antique equipment. In some of the buildings, there were still residents. And a lot of them were uh, retired railroad pensioners. And they were cooking in their rooms. They were doing a lot of things that were not acceptable to the building department and the health department. And in order to renovate the buildings, we had to make sure that they had places to live. Like some of the people that had lived in the Granite Hotel had been there for 30 years. This is a constant tension then, Dana Crawford, the idea that progress in in some people's minds often means displacement. It means that the people who lived there before aren't necessarily the people who live there after. Well, they they call it gentrification. Gentrification. Which is a very misunderstood word. What do you think is misunderstood about it? Well, actually, communities have to think about, in every step of the way, offering a great quality of life. And many times, neighborhoods need to change gradually and cooperatively and with collaboration so that you don't end up with ghettos that are just for certain kinds of people. Do you think Denver's inclusive enough? Not really. I mean, we have a and all through Colorado, and all through the nation, very large numbers of homeless people, which in a way in America is quite unacceptable because we have people that are now lost to opioid drugs. You can't really help somebody recover from addictions unless they have a place to live. So if we're just going to let these people live on the street, they aren't going to be able to get well. What do you say to people who think, but Dana Crawford, you're the reason stuff's so expensive that people can't afford to live in the city center? I can't really say it on public radio. You can't really say it. Mm -hmm. Give me the public radio version of what your reaction would be. Well, they do say it. And they say it about what we did with the Union Station. And yet the Union Station project is very beloved by many, many people. And we have our challenges with homeless people there that want to live there. And that isn't going to be fair to the people that are staying there or in business there. Our guest is developer and preservationist Dana Crawford. We're getting the long view on development in Denver, the state of the skyline, the tension between neighborhood transformation and displacement. Some of Colorado's most beloved blocks and buildings are still standing because she fought for them, like Larimer Square in Denver and the transformation of Union Station. Crawford also has redevelopment projects in Trinidad in southern Colorado and Idaho Springs west of Denver. I asked what sorts of changes she foresees in those communities. Let's go to Trinidad first. Sure. At one time, it was a much larger community and had a huge economy built around the coal business. Not far from the New Mexico border and a really, really charming town. I mean, the architecture there is stunning. Architecture says it all. And a lot of progressive things have been done there by the people who live there and appreciate it. But it's sort of back to the future. A lot of the foundations of the buildings are limestone. They're disintegrating. Mm. 
So we have to figure out a way to, I laughingly say, we have to have a foundation foundation. (laughs) But there is a fabulous theater down there that I'm very, very motivated by, which seats 1,200 people, which shows what the community was like. It's one of the first major opera houses that was opened in 1907 down there. Currently empty. Currently empty. Been closed since 2013. And it was a movie house for many, many years. It has the potential to be a um, tremendous regional attraction. You don't imagine that Trinidad is going to be back to its original size, or do you? Well, you know, that's always a question. People say, well, what do you, what do you want it to be like? And I said, well, I don't think it wants to be an Aspen. But there's so many things that are happening down there that are going to bring about change. We have the latest state park. It's 19,200 acres. Trinidad is 15 miles from New Mexico. When you go up the trailways in the new state park, it feels like you can see all of New Mexico from there. (laughs) And it's stunning. We also have on Main Street in the historic district, we have a new space to create housing project for artists. More artists are moving back there. Do you see artists as a kind of sentinel for a place that's going to transform, that's going to become attractive? It often happens. And one of the things that I have found amazing to observe is that where the artists go, then pretty soon everybody goes and the artists get priced out. So we're going to try to avoid that. Now contrast that with Idaho Springs for me and what you envisioned there. Idaho Springs is a very remarkable example for people to learn about the Industrial Revolution and the role that mining played in the development of Colorado. You're part owner of the old Argo mill up there, which you see from I-70. Mill and tunnels. There's a steep pitch of the land there, and as you drive by, you can look over and see the big old mail building, red building. I drove by there for, you know, years and years and years, always wanted to know, what is that What is that place? Yeah. So I went up, and it didn't take me very long to figure out that the Argo property is the epitome of a landmark. It is an amazing storyteller. And it is going to be topped with 500 acres that's owned by the city of Idaho Springs, which is going to be an outdoor recreation area. And you see this as a mix of condos and a hotel and worker housing. Do I have that right? You have that exactly right. So, but another thing that we began to look at was when we studied Glenwood Springs and what they've done in terms of a a gondola. Because how are people going to get up to the top of the hill to enjoy all of the activities that are going to be offered up in the outdoor recreation area. Is this more than a pipe dream for Idaho Springs? I know it's been in conversation now for years. I believe it'll happen. What do you think? You certainly have a track record of making things happen. Well, people always say, what makes you able to get things done? And I just say, well, I nag a lot. (laughs) Exactly. Well, why don't we wrap up by having you reflect on whether you think Denver, whether you think Colorado, is in a better place 50 years later? Is in a different place? A worse place? How do you see that span of time? Well, I wish that your listeners could be here with us 
and that we could all look out to the south from this old flour mill where I live well, on a railroad track. Let's bring them here with us. What is it you want to point out as you look out of that window? Well, when I moved in here 20 years ago, there was nothing out there. The ballpark would have been brand new at that point. It was, and, and there was nothing. I could see what was going on, and I could hear what was going on at the ballpark. But out here to the south, where you see a great city now, full of buildings. Houses and offices. Lots and lots of housing. And if you walked out through there, then you would see a Whole Foods, or you would see other hotels. When I first got involved with the Oxford Hotel, and we opened it in 83. Not far from Union Station. Not far from Union Station. There were no other hotels. We were the only hotel in Lower Downtown. Now I believe there are 11 more. That's the sign you'll leave us with. Right. I'm, I'm guessing you think it's been an improvement. It is greatly improved, but we have to be vigilant. We have to be very vigilant about our quality of life because, as a friend of mine, an architect and a professor at the University of Colorado said, you ain't seen nothing yet. They're coming in droves with climate change. They're coming in droves. You mean to say that you think Denver's future will be as a safe haven for climate refugees? Is that what I hear you saying? They have to come someplace. Wouldn't you think they'd go to the highest place? Dana Crawford, a Coloradan since 1954, has played a major role in the state's development in the last half century. All this year, as CPR marks its 50th anniversary, we'll look at how this state has changed and where it's headed. Our next guest has an idea that sounds like science fiction. Bricks made with bacteria that can suck carbon dioxide out of the air, thus fighting climate change. These bricks could also reproduce themselves. Will Shrubar is an engineer at CU Boulder. And Will, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Could we call this a living brick? You absolutely can. Uh, So what we've created and what we've recently published um, in the journal Matter is what I would consider our seminal work, where we have created a living building material um, that exhibits both biological and and structural function. Um, We really wanted to enable the biology to play a role in the initial manufacturing uh, of of a brick, uh, which is is pretty unique. Um, And what's really exciting is that we can, in essence, keep that biological component alive so that the biology can remain functional uh, both during use and and even be useful to us after its useful life. I mean, I think of buildings that stand for, you know, hundreds of years. Are you saying that this brick could be alive as long as that building is standing? We use uh, a type of bacteria, a cyanobacteria that is that is quite resilient uh, to um, uh, to long-term dehydration or other other environmental stress. So you know, in terms of the useful useful life, we do envision that 
uh, we could, um, just by really tailoring the environmental conditions uh, by which uh, the material, um, you know, in which the material is used, we could see long life uh, from from these types of, of biological building materials. Okay, but you can't say how long necessarily. It sounds like that might be a part of the experimentation. So this has to be rigid enough to support a building. It sounds like it has certain conditions that it likes, that it thrives in. Um, help us understand, though, what powers the bacteria add, the benefits of adding bacteria to brick, making bricks something biological. Absolutely. Uh, what we showed in, in, in our uh, initial work was that the biology, um, you know, if we, if we think of bacteria and, and cyanobacteria that, that, is, that are powered by the sun, uh, we use this particular strain of cyanobacteria that, that biomineralize. Um, and so when we create what we call the parent generation of, of the building materials, the bricks, uh, the bacteria use sunlight uh, and, and CO2. Um, and help us bind sand particles together by biomineralizing uh, and, and toughening uh, kind of the glue that, that binds the sand particles. Um, we create an environment inside the, the, the brick to keep the bacteria alive. Uh, and what we showed is that we can, just by tailoring the humidity um, and, and the temperature, uh, we can keep the metabolism of the bacteria low uh, if we just want the brick to, to hold up um, a, a certain amount of load. Uh, but if we really want to reawaken the bacteria, uh, we can do so by, again, tailoring the temperature and the humidity. And uh, what we showed is that we can cut a brick in half, um, and in the right conditions, the half of uh, each half of the brick can grow into two, uh, two can grow into four, and four into eight. Um, so this was really questioning the, the paradigm of manufacturing one widget at a time or one, one brick at a time and leveraging the capability of biology to, to exponentially replicate um, and manufacture uh, building materials. Okay, well, that sounds I, a, a I'll bit also like, say that, let me just say that, you know, that sounds a bit like the blob, right? You think of the blob expanding and going out <laughs> from under a door. But you do envision that this could help in like natural disaster recovery. For instance, if buildings it, could in a way be self-healing. Exactly. So not only could we rapidly manufacture uh, materials uh, to help uh, in, in disasters or, or uh, uh, disaster recovery, um, but we could also um, you know, use, the, use the materials on site as, as really the structural building blocks. You know, we, we uh, have published a paper that, that ha used sand really as the structural scaffold and the load-bearing component but we're really not tied to, to sand. We could use anything from, from ground glass to uh, ground up plastic to even rubble um, that, is, that is created uh, during natural disasters. But what problem is that solving exactly? In other words, why wouldn't you just bring in crews to rebuild a building? Why would a self-healing building be a better building? What we're really questioning is the paradigm of, of cementitious materials. Uh, and there are does that mean very like, significant Does that mean like cement? Exactly, cement and concrete. Um, you know, those those folks who who have been watching and listening uh, closely uh, with uh, climate change conversations know that uh, cement production alone is responsible for six percent of our global CO two emissions. Um, and what we were really showing as we were uh, through through this manufacturing process of of our materials is that we can get a cement uh, cemented uh, brick by actually using carbon dioxide in the process. 
using carbon dioxide, capturing carbon dioxide, as opposed to releasing carbon dioxide, uh, which normally this cement process does. Exactly. Uh, to make cement, we burn limestone uh, to, because we want <laughs> the calcium and the calcium carbonate. Uh, we burn limestone um, to get that component. In doing so, we, we off-gas uh, carbon dioxide, uh, which is, again, a, a significant problem. Um, but, you know, we, we questioned, well, what made the limestone? And really, it was the huh. bacteria, uh, like cyanobacteria and other biomineralizing uh, organisms, that made the limestone in the first place. So why not start there? Okay, so you'd make a dent both in having a different way of building things, and then these bricks would also just become kind of carbon sinks. Is that what you envision? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we there, there are some pretty significant um, environmental challenges uh, that the built environment faces. Uh, you know, if we as a planet um, are to uh, maintain... Um, uh, or, or really try to aspire to, to keep our uh, average uh, uh, temperature rise uh, less than 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, the built environment really needs to take a critical look um, at what's called the embodied carbon of, of buildings, uh, really the, the emissions uh, that have been um, uh, that are released as a result of building material manufacture. Uh, concrete is is a heavy hitter, um, and if we look to more natural materials like like wood and and mass timber, cross laminated timber construction, and perhaps these materials uh, like our bio bricks, uh, we can definitely move the needle uh, on climate change. I, I do question the safety of a brick that could be in a kind of growth spurt phase. I mean, wouldn't that make a building fairly unstable or at least vulnerable <laughs> if the if the right conditions, you know, started feeding the cyanobacteria? We get this question uh, uh, quite a bit. And, you know, what, what we effectively do is encapsulate uh, the bacteria after the, the manufacturing process. Um, so you can kind of think of them um, just a lot like storing your leftover food in the refrigerator. Okay. Uh, the, the metabolisms of the bacteria are such that uh, they won't grow and replicate um, nearly as fast as they would in the conditions that they, they actually like to thrive. Um, so, of course, um, like all uh, building materials, you can even think of drywall. Um, you know, once drywall gets wet, uh, obviously um, it's, it's non-functional and, and we would have to replace it. Um, so just, just like um, normal building materials, we would want to con uh, contain uh, and ensure that, that we're preserving uh, these types of biological building materials um, in a way that is not conducive to its uh, exponential growth phase. Well, before we go, how long until I can have a cyanobacteria home or, or office building? <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, a, a lot of new materials introduced into the market um, are, are often, you know, decades um, away from commercialization. But we really do feel just because of the simplicity of our system um, and the, the growing demand for materials with reduced carbon footprints, um, we're looking at commercialization in the next five to five to ten years. Oh, wow. Well, thanks for sharing this with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Will Schrubar is a professor in the Department of Civil, Environmental, and Architectural Engineering at CU Boulder, and his team is working on a living brick which uses bacteria to suck carbon dioxide from the air. These bricks could be self-healing. When we come back, cycling legend Jonathan Vodders, who's made a monumental New Year's resolution. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Colorado Public Radio continues to bring you special coverage of the Senate impeachment trial on CPR News when proceedings are underway. Access to this important, developing story is an essential part of Colorado Public Radio's commitment to keep you informed. During this special coverage, we're also making the regular CPR News daily schedule available on HD Radio at 90.1 FM Channel 2 in Denver and online at CPR.org. Cyclist Jonathan Vodders made a New Year's resolution that his Colorado-based team will win the Tour de France. He tweeted, that's what's left. Maybe not this year, but in the next decade, it will happen. Vodders is a legend in the sport, an anti-doping advocate who lived through one of cycling's darkest times and came out on the other side. We spoke last fall when he released his memoir, One Way Ticket, Nine Lives on Two Wheels. You say cycling is always heartache. Why? Well, it's a sport that more more wrong usually happens versus right. I mean, it's just so much easier for something to go wrong in a race. Um, you know, if you look at most sports, there's sort of team A versus team B. You've got a 50% chance of winning. In cycling, there's 200 riders in a professional race. One guy gets to win. So your odds are a lot lower right off the bat. And then you throw into the equation flat tires, weather. We don't cancel races for snow or hailstorms or wind or rain or heat. Races are basically never canceled. You throw that into the equation. And then you throw in crashes. And the races are three weeks long, so people are getting ill. Um, the body's under you know such an incredible stress day in, day out. So essentially... Whenever you're able to win a race, like if, if, a, if a rider, like most riders race about 100 times a year, yeah. and if they win five of those races, it's considered an incredibly successful season. So 95% of the time for, for an incredibly successful rider, one of the top riders in the world, 95% of the time they're losing. It sounds like an infuriating sport to dedicate a life to. Yeah, it's, I wouldn't say infuriating. It's just you have to be willing to kind of sit down in the valley for a very long time, waiting for that one moment where you get to go all the way to the top of the peak. You write, I'm not really sure why I signed up for my first bike race. I had very little coordination, very small muscles, and was a good six inches shorter than the next smallest kid in my class. But what happened that first time you got on a bike? Well, <laughs> the first time I got on the bike, I, I, I got my butt kicked in my first race. I mean, I finished dead last. But over time, for some reason, it the sport of cycling was such a challenge to me. And I, for some reason, I just refused to give up on it. And that, you know, that basically sort of drove the rest of my life, if you will, that, that I am going to overcome insurmountable odds in order to be successful at this, in order to to eventually find a way to win. You raced professionally in the 1990s and 2000s, and your first pro competition, I think, was that five-day race in Spain? Mm, yep, correct. Semana Catalana. The week of, yeah, the Catalan week. Yeah. Catalan week. Yep. How did you feel going into it? Well, going into the race, I thought I was going to, you know, win it and walk away. And I, I mean, this is the way, you know, professional athletes think. We all think we're the best in the world. And I thought I was going to be the best in the world. And um, and it was kind of funny because th that, you know, even though I'd progressed through the junior and amateur ranks and become one of the best amateur riders in the world by that point in time, 
upon turning professional, I was shot all the way back to that very first race in Colorado, where all of a sudden I was the runt of the litter and, you know, and dead last once again. Let me have you read from the book. So just between those lines. Sure. Okay. I was not going to be the first rider across the line like I had dreamed. Suddenly, I was back where I'd started, riding my bike as a 12-year-old all over again. I was the worst, suckiest, slowest, clumsiest bike rider in the pro peloton. I descended like a climber, and I climbed like an out-of-shape sprinter. Prompted by some vague sense of pride, I struggled on toward the finish, but I was embarrassed every time a different team car passed me to catch up to the riders that were still actually racing. I wanted to quit, just like I wanted to quit my first bike race. What was wrong at the time? Well... I mean, in that particular race, there are a lot of things that were wrong. It was, uh, I was just, you know, I I was not prepared for the speed and the intensity. And um, I was not prepared for the physical level of professional cycling at that point in time. I just, I I wasn't, I wasn't there. I wasn't close. Is that because so many others were doping at that point? Well, it was getting to be that way. And in 1994, that was sort of like the start of the age of, of EPO, which was, you know, it's a drug that's incredibly, um, effective, uh, at performance enhancing. And that was the start at that, at that particular race, I just wasn't quite at the level yet. But as we get into 1995 and 1996, where doping becomes much more prevalent, I actually had built myself up to be, you know, at the level of professional cycling. But unfortunately, just as I was sort of building myself up to a higher level, you know, the doping had become such a large-scale endemic, culturally broad problem in the sport that, you know, you, it laughed anyone who was unwilling to, to make that leap pretty much in the dust. Gosh, just as you were coming into your own. You were racing when most top riders like Lance Armstrong were doping. You write that you knew doping wasn't ethical, that it endangered your health, and yet you doped as well. I guess the pressure to do so was... Too great? Well, you know, I don't know if it's pressure or if it's just, um, you know, almost that the cultural environment that you're in at that point in time, it was not considered a bad thing to do. The other writers in the Peloton spoke about it openly. Team doctors, team management, it was spoken about openly. It was seen as sort of a very private... um, way to get business done. And and I know that sounds really strange, but, you know, one of the the funniest things when people say, well, you know, is the pressure to do it and so on and so forth and, and, and sort of, but, you know, a lot of riders on other teams when we weren't doping would openly come up to me and say, why aren't you doping? Come on, man, get with your, get with the program here. Like, you you know, you're a good rider, you've got talent, but like, you're never going to succeed like this. And you stop and think, wait a minute, why would another rider who's beating me all the time on another team who has a commercial interest in beating me all the time, why would yeah. they come up to me and, and, and try to convince me to dope? And that's where it's really interesting with professional athletes. And this is where people go a little bit wrong in what their perception of what doping is. Professional athletes all assume that they're the best. And I kind of alluded to that earlier. We all yeah. assume we're, you know, that if the playing field is equal for everybody then I'm going to be the best guy out there. So there was almost like a collective guilt in the entire peloton, entire group of that, that, that they wanted you to dope because 
you know, they wanted to beat you fair and square. Like, I don't want to beat this guy just because he's not doing what I'm doing. I want to beat him fair and square. So if I'm doping, then he should be doping too. And so it, it was a very, like I said, it was an effect of like a collective guilt of the entire Peloton. And by the way, yeah. the argument of that if everyone's doing it, it's an equal playing field is a completely garbage argument. It's, Why? It's... Why is that garbage? <laughs> well, I mean, it does strike me that it would just be as easy to say, everybody get off of the drug yeah. and compete on that level playing field. That's but... a better playing field. Yeah. That's a much... Well, the reason that it's a garbage argument is this, and I can only use a an analogy for this is imagine you and I go out and we take down, you know, six shots of tequila for lunch, right? You wake up the next morning with a nasty, nasty hangover and you take two aspirin and your nasty, nasty hangover goes away. I wake up the next morning and take two aspirin and it doesn't even touch it. And we've all experienced this, right? Like one medication for you works really well. For me, it does nothing. And that's the same way all these performance-enhancing drugs work is that so all of a sudden the competition doesn't become about who's the best, who's the best trained, who has the best strategy, the best tactics, the mm. best physiology, who nature intended to be the best of the best, who worked the hardest. All that is thrown out the window. All of a sudden it becomes more of a competition of whose body adapts to a certain pharmacology the best. So what was going through your head the first time you doped? It was a lot more anticlimactic than you might think, because again, this had been a process of years of being pulled into this culture where it was just very acceptable mm -hmm. and very normal. And, you know, a lot of the euphemisms that were used were, well, you know, this is sports medicine. No, it's not doping. This is sports medicine. This is helping your body recover. This is keeping you healthy under extreme stress. Okay. So under that, sure, there was a voice in the back of my head saying, you know that sports medicine and keeping you healthy and all this other garbage is garbage. But when you're in a certain culture, I mean, it's cultural relativism at its best. You know, when you're in a certain culture for such a long period of time, you, you know, you, it, you just kind of slide into it. Okay, so here you are, you've trained, you're at the top of your game, you're also doping, and you race in the famed Tour de France, I think four times. Once you were knocked out by a wasp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just to show you how many things can go wrong. Right, exactly. We were talking Going about that, that earlier. Yeah. What happened with this wasp? Well, it was actually uh, on the second rest day of the Tour de France, and we were just out for a little training ride just to keep the legs loose and open. Um, and, uh, yeah, and a wasp stung me right above my eye. And I didn't know it at the time, but apparently I have an allergy to wasp stings. Um, and so... My one eye totally closed, swollen shut. The other eye was trying to be the same way. And there was a real simple solution for that. And the solution would have been to have taken a cortisone shot, right? But at this point in time, I was on a team that one was trying to clean up and was trying to brace, you know, doping free. And two, the rules in that point in time were a little bit ambiguous regarding cortisone and that like you could use it for a knee injury or asthma, but not an allergic reaction. And now that's changed. You can use it for an allergic reaction now, but at that huh. point in time, it wasn't. And so my team manager, and this guy's like my hero in professional cycling because of this, um, my team manager came to me that, you know, the ER doc said, listen, we're going to give you a shot of cortisone. The swelling will go right down. You'll be able to race tomorrow. And my team manager said, well, no, we can't do that because it's prohibited, you know, for that, that, that would be doping to do that. And the doc said, no, 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 no. We'll just say it's a knee injury. We'll just write in the prescription. It's for a knee injury. And then it's totally clear to go. No problem. 
And I was sitting there going, yeah, easy enough, right? Every, everyone else is using cortisone right now just to go fast. And like, and all, all I want it to do is be able to see where I'm going. And this team manager said, no, that would be lying. And that's how cycling got itself in this predicament in the first place. And oh. it was an incredibly honorable thing to do. I hated him at that moment because I wasn't able to finish the Tour de France. He pulled away my dream by making that hard choice, but it was the right choice. You launched the Slipstream team, now known as EF Education First. Why did you start it, and did you think it had a chance despite bucking the doping odds? Luckily, what we were able to do is is almost create, and I hate to use marketing terms in this, but this is the reality, is that we were able to create almost like a consumer preference in that we were so transparent with all of our anti-doping efforts and so transparent uh, regarding all the testing that we could basically, you know, we could prove that our athletes were clean within a certain margin of error, but we could okay. prove that publicly. And people at that point were so hungry just to know that the athlete they were cheering for was was clean, they were a little bit less concerned as to whether he finished first or 10th, just as long as they knew whatever that performance was, was real. But this is fascinating. This is a yeah. fascinating study for marketing students. Sure. You created a sports team for whom winning wasn't necessarily a priority. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Transparency transparency and a guarantee of the performance being real, that was what we were out there about. And the team only won, I don't know, four or five races that first year, but we were the most popular team in the world. And what that did, and this is where it gets real fun, is that all the other teams stood back and said, wait a minute, this team now is getting more fans, more sponsorship dollars, more publicity. They're the most popular team in the world. And they won four races. How is that possible? Uh -huh. And then they started changing their ways, which started changing the way the entire sport and that culture that I talked about earlier, it really flipped that on its end. And so Jonathan Vodders, how do you think cycling is doing today when it comes to doping? Great. I mean, I think behind closed doors in 1996, it was horrible. It was a horrible situation for young athletes. The reality is behind closed doors now it's a wonderful situation for young athletes and a really great sport to be in. You're not saying there's no doping, but you're saying it's much better. Yeah. What I'm okay. saying is right now, Alex Howes, who's a rider on our team, he's been racing with me since 2004, one of the original team members. He's currently U.S. professional national champion. Um, a great guy, lives uh, in Netherland, Colorado. Um, and I would say Alex is someone who not only has he never doped. He's never encountered doping. He's never seen needles. It's never been part of his professional career whatsoever. He's going to have a great, successful 15-year career, and never will he have to face those choices. And that, to me, is, is what it's all about. I want to wrap up with Mount Evans, <laughs> which has loomed large in your cycling career. It was the backdrop as you began and ended your pro career. I think the last race yeah. you were in yep. was on Mount yep. Evans. How, how did your relationship to that mountain change over time? Well, I mean, it's my, it's my favorite mountain in the world. I mean, it's, I grew up looking at that mountain coming out of my parents' house every morning as my dad would drive me to school. And, you know, a racer in Colorado, the, the most prestigious thing you can do as a racer growing up in Colorado is break the record up Mount Evans. And I chased that for years and years and years. And I won the race a bunch of times, but I never broke the record. And... 
Although I didn't like that at the time, I look back at that and go, you know, that's, I feel like that mountain is a little bit of, it's, it's a, it's a symbol of purity and cycling. And yeah, there was a period I doped in my career and in a way, like, I feel like I never deserved that record. Mm. And so I'm, I bookended my career with that mountain and, and I'm glad that that record is open for, for somebody else to go and break. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Cyclist Jonathan Vodder is of Denver. We spoke in September. His memoir is One Way Ticket, Nine Lives on Two Wheels. A longtime voice at Colorado Public Radio is now silent. Classical and news host Bob Lafley died Tuesday of cancer at age 74. When you heard Bob speak, it was hard to imagine him in any other line of work than radio. Hi, I'm Bob Lafley, music host for CPR Classical. Bob loved music, and he loved telling stories. Children laugh as they run through the snow. Corner Santas ring their bells in the faces of bedraggled shoppers. And above all that, you hear tuba caroling. That was Bob from back in the early 1980s talking about the annual tuba Christmas performance in Denver's Larimer Square. When I got to CPR 14 years ago, Bob was already a CPR veteran, and I remember thinking, I sure wish I could sound like him. As lovely as his voice was, Bob Lafley was a lovely person, too. His nature, his very calm, smooth, soothing demeanor on the radio was exactly the same in real life. That's Sean Nethery, CPR's Senior Vice President of Programming. When it came to radio, Bob Lafley was a natural. His deep voice and warm presence drew listeners in. And his work at CPR didn't end when he signed off the air. Back in the day when there were, I think, 15 of us doing everything, he actually hurt himself taking out the trash during a membership drive. CPR's Senior VP of Finance and Administration, Jenny Gentry. I had to file a workers' comp report, and you have to list what are their normal duties. And I had to explain why a music announcer was taking out the trash. <laughs> They're like, is that normal for a music announcer? I'm like, well, what's public radio? So Bob was a host on CPR News for years, but he returned to classical music towards the end of his life. It was the format where he started his radio career more than 50 years ago. He loved to share his passion for music with listeners. The string quartet, two violins, a viola, and a cello, is one of the most common and well-known arrangements in music. It's hard to imagine a time without it, but composer Josef Haydn is credited with inventing it. Bob shared that love with his colleagues, too. He'd walk around the office offering recommendations, whether it was a moving classical work or a new album from a local rock band. CPR Classical Program Director Monica Vischer recalls coming into work and seeing Bob dig through crates of albums every morning at 7. Radio is an art. Bob was a radio artist. He understood that, and he was able to internalize the music and articulate the beauty of it in a way that has truly been a gift for Colorado, for our listeners over the years. We'll miss Bob Lafley dearly, and we'll leave you with music from one of his favorite groups, the LeBeck Sisters, performing Mozart's Sonata in D Major.
And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.